Hi, welcome to the Bridge Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following message. For more information on all that's happening at the Bridge Church, please visit www.bridge-church.com. So, the lost son is also sometimes called the prodigal son because prodigal means someone who takes uh, and spends recklessly everything they have in uh, foolishness and then regrets it afterwards. So, I'll try and read it, but there'll be times when probably I'll miss the place and just go off in one, but uh, off in a tangent, I mean. <laughs> anyway, around, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> around the time when Jesus tells this parable, his teaching is drawing people to follow him everywhere he goes. They are amazed at the insights he gives them into God's heart towards people the law would condemn. Uh, keep that in your mind. You know, these were, these were sinful souls, just like you and me, but they were under that system that the, you know, the Pharisees promoted the law. And of course, they felt condemned by the law because they just couldn't keep it. But the Pharisees made a great show of keeping the law. Anyway, the Pharisees followed Jesus as well, but mainly to find fault with him and pick holes in his teaching. The law had served them well until this man from Nazareth begins what they see as a movement among the people, causing the Pharisees to lose the control they've had of them. And that's why they saw Jesus as, as a threat, an enemy, a revolutionary you know, and, but the people, the ordinary people, were just drawn to him. And there was something about Jesus that allayed all their fears, you know, that they could approach him and shout even after him, and he would stop and turn around and minister to, to that person. So he was unusual in that day. So here we see Jesus focusing on the subject of lost and found. He starts with a sheep and a coin to which the people can relate. But finally to a person, a son, who loses himself and his true identity in living according to the ways of the world. He portrays the father in a way that cuts through the ideas that the Pharisees have of who the father is. If a coin and if a sheep and a coin have enough value to cause the owner to carry out a thorough search, of how much more value are we to our Heavenly Father? If we could display... I'm just reading it. Could we display Luke, <laughs> Luke 15, 11 to 32? And um, I'll read it from the Bible here. It's from the New King James Version. So the parable of the lost son, as I say, prodigal and lost are, are the same. Then he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, 
and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the, the pigs ate, the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, now notice that, his father doesn't speak to the son, but to the servants, and said, uh, you have lost the place, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Now his older brother, is the older son, was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because of this, has, because he has Sorry, and because he received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as his, this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. How many in here were dead and are alive again? Lost and found. That's us. So... <clears throat> We'll go through it, you know, verse by verse. 
Verse 11 speaks of two sons depicting two very different attitudes towards God, which all of us sitting here can recognize. The youngest son is restless and selfishly wants to free himself from the constraints of his father's house and his duty. He knows he has an inheritance coming which will enable him to live as he pleases, so he demands it now rather than after his father dies. He feels a sense of entitlement, but no idea of having to earn it by working for his father. There's no loyalty or sense of duty other than towards himself. He wants only what his father can give him. So what struck me about this parable was that the father didn't refuse his son's request. Maybe he realized it would do no good Sometimes God allows us to spend time in the world system as the only way we will come to realize how fragile we are without him. That's how, that's how I learned. Also, the father doesn't hold this insulting behavior against his son, but treats him the same as the older son. He just gives them everything. And you think, you know, there's a saying that the sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. So the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. God is so gracious, so good to everyone, you know, and, and um, he has endured many an insult. So both boys were given their portion, but only the older brother stayed to work at home. The father's nature is shown here as one of a giver, in fact, without reserve. As we know, since the ultimate gift, Jesus is the one telling this story. Verse 13 has the younger son going as far from his father as he could. Remember, he went to a distant land. How many of us have lived as far from our heavenly father as we could get for a periods of time in our life, we, we all have, well, maybe not all, but so many of us have. But before long, due to a complete lack of wisdom, living the high life becomes trying to survive the hardships of the low life. So how many turn to God only when disaster strikes? And we think disaster is a terrible thing. But when I look back, the day that disaster befell me is actually the best day of my life because it's the day that I cried out to God. You know, and <laughs> I remember saying these words, I never needed you before. I've always, I've always done what's right, always been independent, but now... I'm suffering and I'm up there with the best of them and I really need you. And I can remember that uh, feeling that came in, that feeling of peace and hope and all sorts of feelings that didn't belong uh, in that house at the time of disaster. But these strange feelings were just coming in, dripping in. <clears throat> Verse 14 and 15 now sees the younger son in want with no savings or means of support. He was now living among the pigs, which in Jewish terms meant without any dignity or respect. 
His worldly lifestyle has completely broken him and left him a prey to those who don't care about his well-being. They didn't give him anything. So far, he only has himself to blame for his misfortunes. In verse 16, we see that from purpose to pigsty is a very lonely journey, as this young man and many of us, I'm sure, have found out. Even now, we know people like that. Verse 17, but sometimes the pig's die is the only way to bring our arrogance and pride to its knees. Far from despising his father's house, the younger son now sees the benefits, even in the position of a servant. In his eyes, he has blown it as a son, but could still hope to be accepted as a servant. I remember just when I was writing these words, a relative uh, of ours felt um, just, she was just a young girl and she got pregnant and she, she said to me, well, I've blown it with God now. And I remember saying to her, well, God's the only one that's going to help you. You know, turn to him now. And all now is so, so good you know, he brought, he brought her through these things. It's just so amazing to me. Um, but again, how she could feel that way because the religion that we belong to, God was distant and he was silent. And so she didn't know how he would look on, on this. But again, judgment, this was, this was terrible. This was a disgrace. You see how wrong this young boy was about his father's heart towards him. He thought, well, I'll, I'll beg him and, and he'll let me be a servant. It's also interesting that thinking about his father brought hope. And I can remember that as well. I can remember that against all odds, I had a feeling of hope. And... and you know, hope is a powerful, powerful thing, you know, because it, it actually gives you so much uh, to hang on to um, when you have hope. So here Jesus is giving us an insight in the words of, of this boy, I've sinned before heaven and before you, that heaven sees our sinful behavior, the whole of heaven. Nothing is hidden to the spiritual realm. Always remember that, that there is no hiding place, really. Along with the world at large, this is verse 19, the prodigal sees his father as giving him only what he has deserved because of his neglectful attitude and sinful behavior. This is where we judge God. Outside of the kingdom of God, no one can see the father's goodness, only his judgment. In fact, it is this view of judgment from God that is many people's reason for staying away, for not coming near, and because they, they have judged God as the judge. Verse 20, this verse is so interesting because after rehearsing what he will say to his father, he feels a sense of hope which enables him to rise up from the low place to which he has sunk and journey back to his father. 
Hope in God causes us to rise. Hope in God gives us fresh energy to begin what is often a long way back. Well, there are people in here who know just what a long way back can, can be like. You know, where they've got to take themselves off and live in a different place and um, start again. Hope enables us to feel optimistic and hope gives us courage. These four things happen when we have hope in God's nature and goodness rather than in the world's promises. In the boy's eyes, he is now more realistic about being unworthy to be called a son because of his wrong attitude, behavior, and lifestyle. But he's only aiming to be accepted as a servant, and he has enough of a memory of his father's goodness to feel that this could be possible. No longer an entitled son. Now, Philippians 2, verse 6 to 7, tells us of Jesus, the son becoming a servant so that we could become sons of the Father. This, this parable has so much in it, you know, of, of the beauty, just the wonder of the interaction between God and Jesus, you know, the Father and Jesus on our behalf. It's so wonderful. Uh, <clears throat> None of us are worthy to be God's sons and daughters in our natural human fallen state. But that's where we begin. It's not where we end. In verse 20, we are told that the father was watching out for his son and therefore saw him in the distance and ran down the road to meet him. And it made me think of that song, All my life you have been faithful. When we were faithless to him, when we were in the pigsty doing our thing, thinking it was good at times, God was faithfully watching us, watching over us, because he knew our future. He knew our destiny. And so he never took his eyes off us, although we often took our eyes off him. That song was so perfect. Yeah, so the father saw him in the distance and ran down the road to meet him. You know, we don't even have to travel all the way back because the father is traveling towards us. You know, he just wants to see us making a start. Jesus says the father's only feeling was compassion as he saw the state of his son. Now remember, this is Jesus telling this story. So Jesus knows what he's talking about. He knows his father's heart. And didn't Jesus himself feel compassion in Matthew 9, 36 and Mark 6, 34, when he saw the people were like sheep without a shepherd? That same compassion. And I'm not like Pastor David. I can't go to the Greek or the... <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't even think about that, actually. But I'm standing up here, I'm thinking, maybe I should have you. There's, there's probably a specific word for those two, uh, two scriptures, you know, the word compassion and, and the compassion that the Father felt. How many of us know that even when we were far away from him, our Father's eyes were constantly on the lookout for us? 
Now, I didn't know this. I think I probably felt that God would rather focus on those who were doing well spiritually. There were people um, in, in my life that I held up on a pedestal because to me, they, they had it. They were the ones, you know, uh, that, that were in church as often as, as they could. And they were the ones sitting, you know, saying their prayers and just never putting a foot wrong. And I can remember I went to speak to one of them and they said, shh, don't speak in church. <laughs> and that was, you know, all the time I was always at odds with these people that I felt were the good ones, were the ones that, you know, were close to God. And again, we represent God by our behavior. And so we start to think about God in the way he is represented by people. You know, and, and so I thought God was distant. You know, the, the eyes were, you know, seeing who, who's the next sinner that is going to give the chop. To, you know, and I can remember, and I remember it, uh, one wee boy came into church and his mum says, Shh, now say your prayers. So he started to pray, this wee boy. And the next thing, he got fed up praying. <laughs> he said, Jesus, I'm talking to you, but you're not answering me. <laughs> And everybody, of course, was so shocked. <laughs> anyway, um, so let's picture the state of the returning son. He was exhausted from the long journey, mostly on foot because of lack of funds. But maybe, just maybe, some kind person had given him a lift, even part of the way. He was hungry unless he had been given some food by a kind person. He'd be thirsty unless someone had given him water. He'd be very emotional at the sight of his father. In fact, we know he was running towards him, smiling. His father was smiling. And this would have, well, that would have made the boy buckle in tears. And I remember blubbering myself, um, the idea that the father would accept me. He was already pouring out his sorrowful, prepared speech. Can anyone relate to this on the day of your conversion? Well, I, I certainly can. Was your journey helped by some kind Christians? Mine was. I believe that God sends his agents of mercy to minister to those who are turning towards him. Perhaps you've been one of those agents of mercy. And we're going to get a chance when we... Um, when we start working in the community, it's going to be a chance to be one of those agents of mercy, to minister to those who are turning to what they're called the heirs of salvation. Perhaps you've been, um, as our church prepares to engage with the people of Kilwinning, we will be the Lord's hands, his feet, and his face. And I was saying that today to Gail, that that... We don't realize how important that is, really, but heaven sees. <clears throat> now, that the father's only conversation as he was hugging the boy and kissing him was to command the servants to bring the boy three very telling gifts, the best robe, a ring, and a pair of sandals. Now, notice the father didn't say anything to the boy. 
I would have expected the father would have said, oh, here you are at last. Oh, uh I was expecting that you would come back bedraggled and not a word of condemnation, not one word. Keep that in your mind. The father did not condemn the boy. We'll see who condemns him in a minute. So obviously, the son was wearing tattered clothes that would have stunk from the pigs. But the best robe was more than clean clothing. It was the robe denoting that this was the son of the house, an heir. So the son was re-established as an heir in right standing with his father. Does that ring a bell? Jesus was talking about the robe of righteousness that only he can give in exchange for our rags and filthy clothing. No longer would we feel ashamed because of the filth that sin had covered us in. Think about that robe of righteousness when underneath we know the horrors of sinfulness. Isaiah 61.10 tells us of this robe. Remember the filthy robe that was put on Jesus as a mockery of kingship when he was going to the cross. He endured that so we could wear the robe of righteousness. He had this robe put on him, this filthy robe by men who were, who were attacking him and mocking him. But we've been given this clean robe of righteousness, beautiful robe. So many people who don't know God need the latest designer brand to make them feel that they have right standing, but only in the eyes of the world. When I was down looking after uh, the, the teenagers now, I saw it for myself. I saw the horrors of the things that were coming through on Facebook and even TikTok and all this. Everybody, everybody had to... I mean, even the girls were going to school wearing tons of makeup, like panstick. You know the old panstick that used to make you look orange? Well, that's how they're going to school now. Not, not our girls, they, but they're mad that they can't. But, um, you know, this is, how, this is how it is now. So <laughs> they must feel good and they must wear uh, something that makes them feel good, a worldly robe of righteousness has nothing like our father's robe of righteousness. Inside, they are naked and vulnerable, just like Adam and Eve were when the glory lifted. Jesus was prepared to hang naked and vulnerable so that we could be clothed in the robe of righteousness. The next gift was the ring, which speaks of authority as a son. Jesus as the son, had the authority to lay his life down so that we could wear that ring of authority, showing that we are in covenant with the father. That's what the ring, you know, a married couple exchange rings because they're in covenant with one another. A ring is a sign of the covenant and we are in covenant with our heavenly father. So spiritually speaking, we have that ring. And the ring of a house of the, a son of the house was also used to press down on a seal to indicate that this boy, this son, was speaking for the head of the house. It's a powerful thing. It's a, it was a signature, um, really. 
The son was also given sandals to wear. They are a sign of the beginning of a new journey, of walking out this new relationship. It is a relationship of reconciliation and peace and is part of the protective armor of light that is the shoes of the gospel of peace we're told about in Ephesians 6. So the prodigal is now at peace because of the father's unconditional love, grace, mercy, and favor. That's what was given to us. Be assured along with me that Jesus dealt with the sin question and brought us into right standing before his Father. We will fall because we're human. But we have a powerful inter intercessor, Jesus, who only wants to pick us up again. He doesn't want to beat us when we're already down. He wants to pick us up. And I remember... And I still feel that way, that when I'm mad with myself, when I feel I've blown it once again, I can't wait to get to Jesus. Because I know that he's not going to condemn me. I'm already condemning myself, just like this boy. But I know that he wants to pick me up. The prodigal is now, as I say, at peace. Be it the father was more concerned with pouring out his love and longing for his son than considering any form of punishment. Think of the impact that this must have had on his son. The father was dressing him for a celebration, a great feast with no expense spared. That's verse 23. The fatted calf was always kept in readiness for the return as if from the dead of the father's lost son. This is such a great picture of rejoicing in heaven over each lost soul being found. So there's, think of the number of, of rejoicings there's been in heaven with all of us in here being found. Heaven must be a place of continual rejoicing. Now, verse 25, we come to the elder brother, the dutiful one who has remained working for his father. On his own admission, he has done his duty for his father. He is motivated by this because life has placed him in this position and he must live up to it. That's his nature, the nature of somebody who judges others, also judges himself. You know, you're not doing good enough. You're not, you know, you, you drive yourself. It seems to me that his enjoyment has come from doing his duty, as he certainly hasn't been partying with his friends or even with his father. His life has been all about duty. So when his brother returns as though from the dead and gets this amazing response of love from his father, the elder brother cannot rejoice or even take pleasure in his father's joy. His brother has done nothing to deserve it. In fact, quite the opposite is true. He deserves to be shunned and ignored for the reprobate that he is. What about knowing what your duty is and always doing it as he himself has? This makes me think of the saying, duty is its own reward. You know, that uh, you get your satisfaction from doing your duty. And I, I do remember asking a nun one time, what 
do you know what made you become a nun? Because she was the epitome of misery at times. And she said, doing my duty, doing my duty. And I always remembered that, you know, and I think, I thought, you weren't made for this. You were made to be happy, to be joyful. And here you were, you know, in this, you were, she was a bit of a misfit in the convent, really. <clears throat> so he hasn't expected anything from his father for what he has done, but approval of the lifestyle he has lived until now. He's unused to the sound of rejoicing. Verse 28, he's angry with his father because in his mind, the younger brother has been shown undeserved favor when he believes that favor should be a reward for duty done. The bitter root of judgment in his heart spills over as he addresses his father. You know, there is such a thing as bitter root judgment. And in counseling situations, that's what people have to be delivered from. Because in their hearts and in their, in their soul, life has just piled on one bitter experience after another. And they've had nothing to bring to that, to offset it, except to feel that life has dealt them blow upon blow upon blow and there's no let up. And it causes this bitterness, this bitter root. And we know from scientists, from doctors, that sometimes these things extend into the natural realm, into the physical realm, and you begin to suffer in your own body because, because of this um, bitter root. And again, God feels compassion for people in that situation because they're driven by this idea that their lot has been a bitter one. <clears throat> so he says to the father, this is what's in your heart, as we know, spilt out of your mouth. <clears throat> I have never transgressed your commandment these many years, but you have never given me a young goat to make merry with my friends. In other words, you don't appreciate my hard work and righteous living. His father's response in verse 31 and 32 is to tell his son that he is always with him and that everything he has is his. But now he pleads with him to share his joy over the return of his brother, the lost son. It makes me think that there hasn't been much joy in the elder brother's relationship with his father. No real expression of love, just duty. Therefore, he cannot be glad even for his father's sake. You know, depending on where you were born, how you grew up, what family you were in, what church you were in, if you were in church, that's so understandable that many people felt judged by Everybody, really. Um, they just couldn't do right for doing wrong. And, you know, try as they might, they, they just couldn't see God as a compassionate father. 
For 50 years, I was in a works-based religion. I was born into it, and so I obeyed its commands and performed its duties. To me, God was distant and silent. I didn't have a true relationship with him or even think that such a thing was possible. I thought of myself as a good person doing my religious duties, but any joy I felt came from my secular life with friends. That's who I parted with. <laughs> and it brought me great pleasure. I tell you, weekends were great. <laughs> um, my religion gave me a sense of importance because I equated having a religion with being a respectable person. What a different person I was to become as soon as I realized that I was a sinner Saved from punishment, not by my good works, but only by God's grace through Jesus, my Savior. Now, I could feel the Father's joy every time somebody else was saved. But best of all, I was joyful too. There was no kidology in that. I felt a surge of joy every time somebody came up. I mean, we all have, haven't we? We all clap, we all think, how wonderful. And when it doesn't happen, we feel a bit disappointed. That's why Pastor David puts the altar call out Sunday after Sunday. So I learned that religion, religion, now I'm not knocking anybody's religion. I had one myself. But it's the best man can do to reach God. And that's why man aspires to make it as seeker-friendly, as beautiful as all that, you know, as, as it can be um, to entice people to go into that system. Whereas relationship is God's way of reaching man. We can't reach him any other way. And I pray for those who are still embedded in religion, in religious duties, in the performance of endless repetitive prayers and things like just thinking you know that well God God is bound to think that I'm doing the right thing because that's what I'm told I should be doing and I remember I remember it being piled on so that I thought I was doing well enough with just doing one particular thing but then when I was told no no you've got to do 15 or you've got to do these endless, um, you know, people were going to purgatory. You had to strive to get them out. All of that. But people's hearts are good and they want to do good. They want to obey, you know. And what a relief it is to discover that God loves us. He watches us, he watches over us, he welcomes us, he wants a relationship with us. So, how can we know God's heart towards us if we don't have a relationship with him? Religion actually creates its own version of God and imposes that version of God on those born into it. The elder brother was as distant from his father as the prodigal son had been. All of us who have come to know our Father's unconditional love have been given the gifts of the robe of righteousness, of the ring and the sandals 
We are in right standing with him and can approach him at any time because he has given us the means to do so through our Savior, Jesus. The elder son would not approach his father except through the pride of having done his duty. So that's, I've come to the end of it. But this morning, it just struck me um, that God himself is judged unfairly. You know that we don't, we, we don't know how many times he has saved us actually from death when we were out there in the world doing our thing, moving and shaking in the world. How close we could have come to complete annihilation, disaster. We know so many um, cases like that. But he had his eye always on us because he never slumbers or sleeps. He keeps an eye on us because he knows. And that's what should give us hope if we have sons and daughters who at the moment are moving and shaking in the world. But by our prayers and our faithful God, they'll come back. Just like this prodigal son they might be ragged, they might be, they might be in a state, they might be blubbering and all sorts, but they'll come back. Keep that hope in your heart and transfer it in your prayers that that hope will enter the hearts of those who feel that they've blown it, that they're so distant, that there's no way back, that God is remaining silent. And remember, that we are often the means that he uses to bring people, to aid them on their journey. And in our journey as well, our journey's not done. I mean, he's <laughs> still a lot to do in me uh, in different areas because sometimes what you're born into, it's difficult to, to actually come away from. You know, and it, it surprises you sometimes. Thanks for listening. Remember to visit our website, www.bridge-church.com and connect with us via Facebook and Twitter. Twitter.